Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, the second half of the New Testament. I want to talk this morning about a spiritual principle that uh, the Lord really reinforced to me very strongly yesterday. Uh, we were down in Chicago as a family, and um, I was still wrestling a little bit. Lord, what do you want me to say tomorrow? And and what's the word that you have for our congregation? And and uh, He just reinforced this as we were walking around. And uh, as I thought more about it later, I thought, you know, this is such a a foundational principle um, to our calling and a, and a foundational principle uh, to our faith. And it is so integral uh, to us being disciples and, and to us being witnesses and to us fulfilling our calling that the Lord has given to each of us that we can't really talk about those things without living by this standard. In other words, we can't be children of God and believers and disciples and people who are serving Him without also fulfilling this in our own lives. Uh, And this is, to me, such a great principle that I think the Lord wants to tell us this morning. Now, 1 Thessalonians, all of Paul's letters to the churches in the New Testament were very personal. And they were very specific to the church. What he writes to the church in Corinth is different what he writes to the church in Ephesus or Philippi or Colossae, or Thessalonica. Uh, Every church had a different message because every church had a different situation. The people there were Jewish or Gentile, or they were uh, living by the law still, or they were really uh, living by grace, or they were struggling with disunity, or they were wrestling with theology, or there was false teaching, or there was the influence of false gods. Whatever the case may be, in every city there was a different situation, and Paul wrote specifically to those situations and to the problems that were there. And communication back then was obviously very different than it is now uh, because information was so much more limited and it took time for the news to get there, uh, often weeks, maybe a month, depending on who was taking the information. So it wasn't like we have today where you, I said to you last night, I love texting. It's just so quick and so easy. They didn't have that. They, they wrote on papyrus and they would send it by a messenger and the messenger maybe had to, go to two or three cities and would stay and visit. So it took a while for the message to get out. We get so spoiled, don't we, that we can see pictures of anywhere in the world today. I was looking up Thessalonica and and found pictures of the ruins, and then it said, look at Philippi. So I looked at Philippi. And we can just access it right now. We never have to visit Turkey or Asia Minor to see what these cities look like. And we can easily video conference with somebody. Some of you will do that tomorrow. You'll video conference by Skype or whatever means uh, with someone six, seven thousand, ten thousand miles away, and it's it's easy. Their face pops up on the screen, and you can talk to them, and it's it's very easy. Now, Paul obviously never had those luxuries. He didn't have the ability to communicate instantly, and there were churches and places and people that that he writes to that he never saw face to face. He never visited them, and yet his life and his ministry were so powerful and so influential that people's lives were changed even though they never met him. And their lives were impacted in a, in a significant way and the gospel expanded throughout all of this area and the, the, the hold of Christianity started to, to, to take hold in terms of all these areas and churches were sprouting up and people were evangelizing and people were getting saved. It, it was very incredible just because of Paul's influence. Now, we see evidence of that 
here in our first text. We're going to look at two different texts this morning, both here in this book. But let's read the first one, chapter 1, starting in verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father. Drop down to verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, Paul was very proud of the church in Thessalonica, and along with the church in Philippi, these were two of the stronger churches that Paul ministered to. But he was especially proud of the people in Thessalonica because they were really steadfastly walking with the Lord and they were ministering to their city. And Thessalonica was a very prominent and powerful city. It was essentially the capital of Macedonia. Um, it, It hadn't been declared that, but it had become so strong and the government had kind of moved there that it became uh, this capital, and it had a great harbor. And the harbor in Thessalonica um, did a lot of trade. There was a lot of import and export. So there was a lot of movement, a lot of people coming through, a lot of activity. Now, Paul visited there on his second missionary journey. And initially, when he went there, he found a synagogue of Jews. So he went into the synagogue for three weeks, and he spoke about the Old Testament knowing that you need to talk to people where they are and what they're relating to. So he finds the synagogue of Jews and he starts to talk about the Old Testament and expound on it and talk about how the prophets had prophesied about the coming of Messiah. And then he turned it to how Jesus Christ fulfilled that and how they needed to trust in him. And many Jews did. But even more so than the Jews, the Greeks in Thessalonica put their faith in the Lord. Uh, There was a man named Aristarchus, And Aristarchus became a great friend of Paul. And later on, Paul would write, Aristarchus is my fellow prisoner. They were in jail together. So the Lord moved in Thessalonica, and Jews and Gentiles both got saved. And Paul, because he was strategic in his thinking and because he was very wise, saw Thessalonica as a great opportunity that the gospel could be centered here, and this would be the location from which it would go out. Now, that seemed like a great plan. The problem was that the Jews in Thessalonica got irritated. And irritated is an understatement. They were angry that he was changing the thinking of the Jews and talking about Jesus, and they became very jealous. And at some point, they attacked the owner of the house where Paul was staying and dragged him out into the street and and kind of persecuted him. Uh, And then the Romans got uptight because they heard that the Christians were talking about a king, and there was only one king, and that was the Roman king, so, so they got frustrated and said, well, we can't have this. And, and the, the opposition got so strong that in the middle of the night, Paul and his accomplices left and went to the town of Berea and ministered there. Paul, we don't think, ever got back. Now, through all of this, and that background's important to understand this text, through all of this, the church in Thessalonica stayed very, very strong mostly made up of Jewish, uh, excuse me, of Gentile converts. Uh, but even after Paul left, the church was opposed. And in chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says, I'm very anxious to get back to you. I want to come back and minister to you and fellowship with you because I'm so excited about what the Lord's doing in your lives. And yet it says that the devil hindered him. Somehow, 
Paul was not able to get back, so he sent Timothy. And Timothy, before his pastorate in Ephesus, went to Thessalonica and encouraged the people spiritually and strengthened them. Now, all that background to say, this letter, 1 Thessalonians, is after Paul gets his first report back from Timothy. And Paul is so encouraged, we don't know what Timothy told him, but Paul is so encouraged to hear that they are serving faithfully. And if you look at verse 3 again, it says that their faith was solid, that they were laboring with love, and they were steadfastly putting their confidence in Christ. I don't know what better thing could be said about a church. And I don't know what better thing could be said about this church, that we would strive, that this would be true of Harbor Rock Tabernacle, that our conviction and our trust in the Lord would be unwavering. That would be first. The church is known by its faith. It's not known by its building. It's not known by its pastor or by its music or by their children's program or whatever. A church ultimately is known by its faith. Do they trust the Lord? Are they committed to the Lord? Are they walking steadfastly with the Lord? Second thing they're going to be known by is are they marked by love? Do people really care about each other? The, the whole sense and the whole word community and family and all those words, they're thrown around a lot. But, but when it gets down to it, do, do people really love the Lord and do they really love each other? And then the third characteristic is are people strong and persuasive in sharing the gospel? Do we shy away from it? Is this something we're ashamed of? Or do we stand for the gospel? Do we stand for the word of God? And in that, that trust and that love for the word of God, there then is, is no fearfulness or worry or discouragement or defeat uh, that a church would not be marked by a timidity as Paul writes to Timothy later on. God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but a power, love, and a sound mind. How does the power, love, and sound mind come about? It comes by loving the Lord and standing on his word. So Paul writes to Thessalonica and he says, you guys are doing this well. This is your strength. And if you look at verse 3, he says, this is what I, I came to you to minister to you. That, and now I'm encouraged that Timothy tells me that you're constantly bearing in mind what's going on. I hope that verse will be our passionate desire. I hope that will be our distinct priority as a church. That we would do this that Thessalonica did. But there was something extra for Paul. It went even beyond that. Look at verse 6. He's so encouraged that the Thessalonians have become imitators of him. That they, that they are modeling and following the example that he and his ministry team came and set, especially in the way that they have received and accepted the word of God with joy in the spirit. Notice now, in times of heavy trial and opposition. In fact, he says, you've done so well at this. And in verse 7, he says, you've now become the model church. You're the example. When I go around Macedonia and Achaia and I travel from village to village and city to city and I start talking to believers and I meet churches and I see the dynamics of what's going on, he says, you're the ones I talk about. You're the example. You're the ones that, that I say, if you want to look like a church, look like Thessalonica. And that was taking place in a very non-spiritual culture. And increasingly, that's what we find ourselves in. But while our trials and our level of opposition are far less, and I mean far less, 
that the Thessalonians face at this point. I think we all sense that rapidly we are becoming a greatly diminished minority. And as we become a greatly diminished minority, we really need to go back to verse 3 and to verse 6 and say, this is what needs to happen in our midst. This is what we need to ask the Lord to do in our lives because the tide has turned rapidly and the days are shorter and shorter. And our stand for the Lord and our posture as ambassadors of the Lord is going to become that much more challenging. That's why this book and 2 Thessalonians and First and 2 Timothy really should be something that we're constantly studying. First and 2 Peter. Because they talk about the last days. And there's a fervent cry here from the Spirit of God for us to awaken and to stand firm for the Lord and to advance the gospel because the window of interest is closing rapidly. Hear that this morning. The window of people being interested in what we have to say and about the gospel is closing and squeezing rapidly to the point that when we go to heaven and the tribulation starts, there is not going to be any interest in the Lord. And converts and people getting saved, it will be an effort. We saw that in our Revelation study. There will be people that get saved, but the vast majority of people will have not only no interest in God, they'll be defiant and rebellious and angry at God. So we have a window, and as we go one more day closer to the Lord's return, which could be this afternoon or next week or in 10 years, we don't know, but every day the window squeezes closer and closer to closing. And we have an opportunity here, knowing that world events are pointing to Jesus' return, But here's the principle this morning. We have a tremendous, undeniable opportunity to impact and influence the lives of other people. That's the calling that we have as believers. In whatever you do, in whatever place the Lord has you, with whatever specific calling the Lord has put on your life, we have the opportunity to influence people for the gospel and for spiritual maturation. Now let me tell you how that that was reinforced in me yesterday in ways I never ever would have anticipated. We were um, in Navy Pier with the kids, which was a madhouse. I don't know, I went through a June Saturday, but anyway, I was in Navy Pier and I was standing there in the atrium and there was music going on and there was a guy about 10 feet away from me with his back to me eating an ice cream cone. And, and for just a moment, as I glanced at him, I'm like, I know that guy. Now, there's no way this person ever would have been in Navy Pier yesterday because he's smart. But for, for just a moment, I thought, that's Pastor Symbol of Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York. Now, of course it wasn't. And, and honestly, when I looked a third time, there really wasn't much resemblance. But, but here's the thought that crossed my mind. How differently would I have responded if it actually had been him? Now, he's been a family friend for about 20 years, and my brother worked for him, and, and I've had the joy of having a few meals with him and some, uh, some great personal conversations, and I, I know some of you have read his books. They have greatly shaped my thinking. His messages have, have spoken to me at very key times in my life. He's influenced my preaching and my, and my view of prayer. There, there is no doubt of, of the influence that he's had in my own personal life, and I, I hope next year 
uh, that we're going to be able to bring him here and have you meet him and, and hear him because he's just a man of God. But, but as I'm standing there in Navy Pier watching this stranger eat ice cream, I thought if that had been him, I would have gone up to him and given him a hug and told him again how much I appreciate his ministry and how much I, I've benefited from his ministry. Well, then we continue on our day and we finally get to the place where we are walking and we're, we're trying to find the trolley because it's raining. We're trying to find the trolley that's going to take us back to Navy Pier in our car. And we're standing underneath uh, an overhang where Michigan Avenue kind of goes two levels. And we're waiting for the trolley. And, and I'm looking down the street for the trolley because you know I'm a very patient person and I don't have anything to do. And all of a sudden, I hear Julie talking to this guy, and she says, yes, from Harbor Rock Tabernacle. And I'm like, who in Chicago knows us? Why, why is she talking to this person? Actually, the man she was talking to was a pastor from Lake Villa. And he initially had talked to her because he and some of his youth group were down in Chicago doing some sightseeing. And as they were waiting for the trolley, they were passing out gospel tracts. Now, now, that alone was refreshing, especially after observing all manner of humanity and all manner of clothing at Navy Pier yesterday. And, and it really challenged my kind of insular thinking. I'm stressed and I'm thinking about myself and when are we going to get home and, and I got a lot to do. And, and here's this guy and these teenagers smiling and people are walking by in their own little world and they're handing, can we give you this? And they look at him. One guy threw it down on the ground. But, but they're, they're handing out things about the Lord. And we started to talk and we made an instant connection because you know that happens when you talk to somebody who's a believer, right? All of a sudden you, you met a family member that you never knew before. And, and th that's that immediate affinity was what struck me. I'm on a street in Chicago. I don't know anybody. I've just spent a day with thousands and thousands of people. And, and here all of a sudden we're talking to this guy and there's this instant affinity of somebody that's like-minded. And as we talked, we had a nice talk. His son and daughter were there. His son's in seminary in, in Texas, and his daughter was very gracious. Julie had been watching her. She said it was so obvious from her demeanor that she was a believer. And then he and I were talking, and I said, well, yeah, I, I graduated from Dallas Seminary, and his eyes got really big. And he goes, did you study under Prof? And I knew exactly what he was talking about. I said, yes. He looked at me and said, you are so blessed. Now, Prof was the name of Howard Hendricks. Everybody called him that. And Howard Hendricks was a distinguished professor, professor at, at Dallas Seminary, especially in the area of teaching how to study the Word of God. He recently died about uh, three or four weeks ago, but no one will ever forget him. And, and not only because he looked like Mr. Magoo, and he would have laughed if I said that in his presence, and he spoke like this, and he always went, now let me tell you about the Bible. Howard Hendricks was a unique, unique man, but he was without a doubt the most effective, influential professor I ever had. And I can tell you that that's true because when he died, all the other professors said the same thing. And they weren't joking. Listen to what some people said about him in an article and recently in our alumni magazine. One graduate said he impacted more lives personally than anyone I've ever known. He went beyond communicating what students should do to convincing them that they could. The article described how in his classes 
Howard Hendricks served as, quote, a stand-up comic, cheerleader, personal trainer, encourager, and super teacher. But his creativity had a purpose, that students might center their lives in Jesus Christ and live according to his word. Boy, is that a great statement for your life, right? That people would center their lives in Christ and live according to his word. Professor was known to say that if he had his way, every student would memorize 1,000 Bible verses before graduating. I'm so thankful to the Lord that that didn't happen. This was his challenge to us. He said, if you and I are going to serve and be approved, our service is going to cost us. If you want success and significance, both will cost you, but it will cost you more not to have made the investment. Now, I took one class with Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary, and it was called Bible Study Methods. It was on Tuesday night. It was the only class I never missed. And it gave me a new love for the Word of God and a fresh hunger to study it. And there's no question that it greatly influenced my preparation and my preaching. So in a way, his life, by extension, has had an impact on you. And if you've ever taken the Bible Study Methods class that we offer here, you know how much I love that class, right? And you know my passion for that. And that was birthed out of his class and out of my own father's influence. Now let me bore you with one more story. You'll hear my dad next Sunday. Some of you have heard him and been blessed by his ministry. And again, I hope you will invite many people. This, this room needs to be packed, and I mean the balcony too. But you know the huge influence on, that he's had on my life. And, and there's, there's no question that no one has impacted me more spiritually or on my ministry than him. Along with my mom, they have set a godly example. They've shown a total love for the gospel and for the word of God. They've had an unwavering commitment to their calling and the work of ministry. They've shown perseverance and deep faith even in difficulty. And they have been a constant encouragement to me and my wife and my kids. Now, my dad is 81 this month. And he just took an interim pastorate in California. That's how much he loves the word of God and how much he wants to minister to people. And he wrote me a text last night as I was finishing studying And I could tell he was tired because he had preached last night. And the text said, seven people saved tonight, all 20-somethings. And I thought, that's my dad's heart. My dad's heart is to see people get saved. And it, it wouldn't be hyperbole to say that I would not be who I am in ministry without him. So again, here's my point. You've been directly influenced and impacted by his life and ministry, even as it is just to me. Now, what does all that have to do with 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2? We'll look back at the verses because as I'm driving home on the Edens, the Lord brought these verses to mind. Because Paul talks in chapter 2 about the way that he had ministered to them and how he had impacted their lives and that they, as a result of his ministry, had chosen to imitate his life and his work for the Lord. In fact, if you look back at verses 2 to 8 of chapter 2, we're not going to read them, but just skim them. He says, there are five truths that have guided me and given me integrity in ministry. Let's just go through them. Maybe write notes in your Bible or on a piece of paper because these are five qualities that should motivate us as we live for the Lord and as we serve him. Number one, verse 2, he always spoke the gospel boldly even suffering for doing so. Paul always spoke the gospel boldly. Second, verse 3, he preached the truth. 
He wasn't clever or deceptive or manipulative. He didn't try to work the audience. He wasn't arrogant. He, he just spoke the truth. And people hated that. And then third, verse 4. He only served to please the Lord. Paul's goal was never, well, I'm going to please people. Or I'm going to try to, to make myself popular. Or, or I'm going to have people notice me. That's a great principle for us to remember and to make a priority because not doing that messes up churches so fast. When we start to make it about ourselves or about others rather than about the Lord, we, we mess up. Number four, verses five and six. He never spoke in a way that was disingenuous or manipulative or for his own acclaim. He was honest and straightforward with the truth. And number five, verses seven, eight. He deeply cared for them, nurturing them spiritually and personally. Now, having proven that, and they knew it, and they had lived it out because they knew it, he then talks with humility, and these are going to be the verses we're going to look at next, verses 9 to 12. He talks with humility about why his example had been worthy of imitation. And this is where the connection, I believe, between my experiences yesterday and what Paul has been writing come together, and when we see it, the Spirit is going to give us very strong application for our lives. Look at verses 9 to 12. For you recall, brothers, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and, uh, devoutly, excuse me, and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Here's the bottom line, verse 12. So that you would walk worthy in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, I want to give you very quickly four principles here because Paul establishes four key principles that are integral to us having a life that impacts other people for the Lord and other people for the gospel. And if you and I, and this is the goal, are going to be influential, if you and I are going to have a difference in the lives of other people, these are so important for us to understand and to live by, and they'll make us effective for Christ. So let's just go through verse by verse. The first principle is the work of ministry is difficult and challenging. The work of ministry is difficult and challenging, but it has a tremendous result. I want you to notice one verse in one word in verse nine, and it's the word labor. An important word picture here. We usually connect the word labor to hard work. I, I labored at my job and I'm doing heavy labor, things that cause strain. But I wanna I wanna take it in a different direction this morning because I believe this is part of what the what the Lord is saying here. I want to talk about uh, how it's connected to the thought of a delivery room. Paul says, you remember our labor. The word has intensity in it. it. It means to strain. And in the context of this verse, I believe Paul is, is, uh, is talking about striving and pushing hard for them to accept the gospel and to be birthed into spiritual awakening. And then he writes to them and says, you are the fruit of my labor. 
Do you remember the, the labor, the pushing that we went through to bring the gospel to you so that your hearts would be awakened? And now you're the beautiful end result of this intense work that we gave them to bring the gospel to you. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that to reach the world with the gospel and to minister to people and to care for them spiritually and personally, that it's not going to be hard work because it is hard work and it's getting increasingly harder. It's a sacrifice. It's a time commitment. It is is effort to try to get people to, to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the labor that we put in is for that goal. The reason people are, are tying foam into chains in the room back there is so that kids would have a picture of understanding in two weeks of what it means to stand for the Lord. That's hard work. People are coming in the middle of the day, some of you coming in and doing this work. And you say, well, there are other things I can do. Absolutely. But ministry's hard work. And our goal as a church is to be a labor room. It's to see people be birthed and to understand, I want to be born again. I want to walk from darkness to life. I want to walk from old to new. I want to get out of the chains of bondage and be released and saved forever. And God is my God. That's what we want. That's what this room's about. To be a labor room. Second, the work of ministry, verse 10 is quickly invalidated if we aren't holy and honest in our character. The work of ministry is quickly invalidated if we aren't holy and honest in our character. Paul's reputation was solid. His work was a mix of passion and effort and integrity and joy. And had he been deficient in any of those, the Thessalonians would not have responded the way that they did. But but this message is not just for unbelievers. Notice that he writes, and he uses the word brethren a couple times. He is writing to believers. How we serve and how we treat each other will have a huge impact on how well the gospel advances. And not doing that well, in fact, doing it poorly, will instantly, adversely affect our ministry to people that don't know the Lord and people that haven't heard about the grace of God. But it not only will affect our outward witness, it'll affect the unity and relationship of the body. Because if we're at each other, and we're not serving each other, and we're not loving each other, and we're not holy in our character, we're going to distract ourselves, and we're going to diminish our ministry. So there has to be a consistency of character, and there has to be a restraint of self for the work of the gospel. That means we're not serving us, we're serving him. And by doing that, and this is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth, by doing that, we show that we have moved out of spiritual childhood. It really doesn't matter how long you've been saved. Maybe you've been saved six months. Maybe you've been saved 60 years. It does not matter because length of being saved does not guarantee maturity in being saved. How many know that's true? I know people that have been saved a year that are farther along in many ways than I am, and I've been saved, what, 39 years? We need to move to maturity. 
and spiritual maturity is moving out of childhood. Paul says, don't keep drinking a bottle if you're an adult. Get to the meat. Go to the word. Start being holy. Be holy as Christ is holy. In other words, and he never says this, but I think he certainly implied it. What are we waiting for? At what point are we going to move to maturity? So that's the second goal. Because if we don't do that, verse 10, our ministry is invalidated. He says, you remember, you're a witnesses how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave to you. And then the third thing is, the work of ministry calls people to maturation and responsibility. Paul goes in verse 11 to the analogy of parenting. And he explains that a parent takes on different roles at different times in order to teach and train the child spiritually and to bring them to maturity. In other words, the way you treat your one-year-old is very different than the way you treat your four-year-old. Heaven help you, keep praying. And the way you treat your seven-year-old and the way you treat your 10-year-old, and then we start praying again because they become teenagers, and that's even more fervent prayer because they can talk back now. So, so then we get to teenagers and then late teens, and then they go to college. And he says, as you do that, there are different parenting styles and different roles. So he says to you, my children, to the church that I helped birth, I, I, I was in the labor room, I saw you come to Christ, now here's what I've done. Look at the words he uses. He says, sometimes I exhorted. It's the same word, parakaleo, that, that is true of the Holy Spirit. It means to come alongside and to admonish and to comfort and strengthen. So he said, times I exhorted you, I admonished you. Come on, let's get going. We can do this. You can be stronger. And then he said, other times I just encouraged you. The word there is to be calm and console. Times when we're hurting, somebody will come alongside us, put their arm around us, maybe not even say anything, or maybe just silently start to pray. And we know they're praying, and all of a sudden our heart gets encouraged. Because there are times I just, I just put my arm around you. And then there are other times, look at the third word, where it was necessary to implore you. The word means to testify and plead. Come on, come on, you can do this. Sometimes it's like, this is what you need to do. Sometimes it's like, I, I just, I'm here for you. And other times it's like, let's get going. He says, I took on those three roles. Now, now, some of those are more natural or preferable to us. But we need to practice all three in ministering to and teaching people in the same way we do with raising our kids. If we constantly yell at our kids, they're going to be frustrated. And if we never do anything but encourage and console them, that, then they're just going to kind of be weak and soft. And well, I don't have any responsibility. And if we just keep saying, come on, you need to get with it, they're going to be stressed. If we don't do some of these and we do others, they'll either be lazy or weak or overwhelmed or defeated or undisciplined or immature. So we as believers have a responsibility to each other. Listen now, I'm almost done. We have a responsibility to each other and we have a responsibility to those we minister to to do all three. And that's where ministry becomes very difficult because we want to please people. And we like people to like us. And we don't enjoy conflict. But we have been given the responsibility to build each other up and to spur one another on and to encourage each other even more, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter writes, 
as the day is approaching of Christ's return. Encourage each other. Come on, strengthen each other now. We've got to keep pushing forward. And it's all motivated by and controlled by love. Because if it's not motivated by that, it's going to seem harsh and judgmental rather than nurturing and for strength. And that's what Paul talks about in the last point. He says, here's my ultimate purpose. Look at verse 12 and we'll pray. So that, here's the goal. Out of all these things that I did and the example that I set and the labor and the devout uh, witness that I had and my behavior and how I exhorted, encouraged, and implored you. Here was my goal, verse 12. So that you would walk worthy, excuse me, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The fourth thought is that the work of ministry has a focused goal of seeing everyone walk worthy of the Lord. The work of ministry, what we're doing, has a focused goal that people would walk worthy of the Lord. Now, none of us is worthy of the Lord. We all know that. But because of the mercy of God and because of our transformation because of Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability and the responsibility to live in a way that is absolutely pleasing to Him. And God says, I have fully equipped you to do this. I have trained you to do this. You have my word to show you how to do it. You have my spirit to convict you how to do it. You have the body to encourage you to do it. And you have the, the, the calling and the commission that I have given you to do it. Now, here is your goal. And your motivation is, look at the end of the verse, your motivation is because God has called you into his kingdom. In other words, because of what you've received and what you've experienced and the fact that we have been brought from death to life and that God not only saved us, but he said, now you're mine. Now you are my child, not my slave, not my servant, not my pawn. You're my child. You're a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. Now, here's your motivation. Because God's called you to do that, help others to understand the truth. I've called you into my kingdom and my glory. Now, the goal of your influence, look at verse 12 one more time, is that others, because of you, would walk worthy in a manner that's worthy of God. Stop and think for a minute. Is everything you and I are doing in our lives and in this church for that goal? And imagine how effective our ministry would be. Imagine how unified we would be. Imagine how fervent our desire would be. Imagine how we would pray and how we would study and how we would worship. If at every moment in all things... We were serving so that people would know and walk worthy of the Lord. That would strip all the pride, all the dissension, all the wrong motives that might exist in our lives and our ministry. It would strip them all out and it would draw them back to Paul's premise in chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, what motivates me is that I've been imitating the Lord. My first and foremost goal is to imitate the Lord. And you know, there are a lot of people that accuse the apostle of being arrogant and making the ministry about him 
including some who were closest to him. He had close friends that abandoned him because he was standing for the Lord. But Paul said, listen, I'm not going to worry about that. God will take care of it. But let me tell you, here's my, here's my one purpose. Thessalonians, you know how I've lived among you. And you know how I have walked. You've watched me. If I was fake, you wouldn't be imitating me. But I have imitated Christ so you can follow my example. I don't know about you, but I want to live that way. I want to be so close to the Lord and so filled with His Spirit and so committed to this calling that this is the only option, that I am walking worthy and you're walking worthy and this church is walking worthy and we're helping other people to walk worthy, to have that measure of influence that, that Paul and the people I talked about earlier had. And you know what? Here's what's interesting. This struck me late last night. Not one of them was special. Not one of them is any different from us. In fact, all of them came from backgrounds and mindsets that were contrary to the Lord. But the Lord changed their hearts and gave them a calling, and they ran with it. So here's the question as I conclude. What are you doing with your life? What are, am I doing with my life? What, what, what is going to be our example? How are people going to imitate us because we've imitated Christ? You say, well, Paul, I'm not a great preacher and, and I'm not a great scholar like Dr. Hendricks. Listen, nobody said you have to be. Wherever God places you, whatever God's called you to do, whatever people he's put around you, we can influence them for the Lord by imitating Christ. And as we imitate Christ, people will look at that and say, I want to imitate you because you're imitating Christ. And God says, now I'm pleased. Let's close our eyes. Lord, we ask you to work in our hearts this morning. Father, this is a challenging, difficult word for us because we know our own failure and we know our own inadequacies. But Lord, you don't, dwell on our failure and our inadequacies. You equip us for the work of ministry and you fill us with your spirit so that we can do the work of ministry. And Lord, I pray this week that we would influence people for Christ. I pray that we would walk in such a way of imitating him that people would be influenced and people would come to understand what it means to walk worthy of him. Lord, what a high and tremendous calling you've given to us. And Lord, it's humbling, and yet we don't want to shy away from it because we know what a joy it is. Lord, cause us throughout this week to think back of how you have pulled us out of sin, to think back to and, and regain the joy of our own salvation. And Lord, as people cross our paths, that we would talk to them and share the gospel with them and say, let me tell you how the Lord has changed me and how I live now. Lord, we pray you would do that work in our midst this week. And we will give you the praise and the glory. Lord, we pray for next Sunday as visitors come more than usual possibly. That you would use the gospel to reach them. That they would see in this church people that love you and love each other. And that it's genuine and that we are standing for you. Lord, bring the harvest in because the window's closing and the days are short 
we know that Jesus is preparing to come back. We pray that we would redeem the time as the days are evil and would serve you faithfully. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.